there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot, talking today, uh, giving answers today to many problems that seem to come to me. And since I've been broadcasting for more than 11 years now, I do have quite a file of the questions that come. I've never thought of myself as the answer woman, and it's been very difficult, frequently, to answer very difficult questions. But I hope that some of these will be helpful to you, and I've put them in alphabetical order. I have far more in my files than I will get through in this week. But the first one begins with A, and it's on the subject of anger, self-pity, and jealousy. This is what one woman wrote to me. As women tend to be more emotional in makeup, how can we turn off these emotions when we need to be acting in a Christ-like manner and attitude in our own lives when they seem to take so much control of us? Thank you for the question. I've dealt with it at some length in my chapter on bringing your emotions under Christ's lordship in a book which I wrote called Discipline, The Glad Surrender. But that is the key. Let me give you a very simple thing that works for me. Whenever I'm tormented with a wrong emotion, whether it be anger, self-pity, which is absolutely satanic, jealousy, or any emotion which I know is wrong and is going to be hindering me, or even if it's an emotion that's not wrong, if it is, as this person says, seeming to take so much control, try this. Go off by yourself, get down on your knees, and just lift up your hands to the Lord and say, Lord, here is this anger. In the name of Jesus Christ, I surrender it to your authority. By your grace, I will not take it back. It's amazing. It's a simple little act, and God hears prayers like that, and he loves to answer prayers like that. Satan will come to you immediately and say, Do you think that worked? Whatever made you think that would work? That's just Elizabeth Elliot's idea. You're a hypocrite. You're a fake. You didn't really hand it over to God. Well, of course, my dear listener, you don't have to listen to that because you did hand it over to God, and God knows that you did. But if you think it would be a good idea to just hand it over again, go right ahead and hand it over again, a thousand times if you need to. But it does help me to make a physical act of getting down on my knees and saying, Here it is, Lord. Take it. Another letter and this is a very common one, somebody writes to tell me that they are angry at God. This woman said, My faith has been challenged. There has been bitterness in my heart toward God. 
I have been angry at him for withholding this blessing from me. Well, the mail brings me many variations on this theme. I'm often asked if I have ever been bitter or angry toward God because he took from me two much-loved husbands. He has mercifully given me yet a third. None of them were sought after. Unless my memory completely forsakes me, I believe I can honestly answer no. I have not been bitter or angry with God. Our adversary, the devil, has tempted me in many ways, but I don't think anger at God is one of them, and I will try to explain why. Number one, God is my heavenly Father. He loves me with an everlasting love. The proof of that is the cross. John 3.16 says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And as the hymn says, Love so amazing, so divine, Demands my soul, my life, my all. Number two, our Heavenly Father wants nothing but the best for any of us. And only He knows what that is, for He is the all-wise, the omniscient. Even an earthly father wants the best for his child, but does not always know what that is. God knows, this is point three now, God knows not only what we need, but when we need it. When He withholds from us the one thing we feel sure would make us happy, it's well to remember His promise that He will meet all our needs, according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. That's from Philippians 4.19. In other words, if we don't have it, we don't need it now. Perhaps he will give it next week, but that does not indicate indifference, forgetfulness, or poor timing. His timing is always perfect. Number four, Resentment makes us vulnerable to Satan, who is called the destroyer. Think what a dangerous position we put ourselves in if we're angry with God. Is there anywhere else for us to turn? In heaven or on earth, there is no other safe refuge. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear says Psalm 46, 1 and 2. He is the ruler of all. He's got the whole world in his hands. Shall we deliberately reject such a refuge? We have only this present moment. This is now number five. We have only this present moment. God does not usually give us previews of coming attractions. But I can look back over many decades, remembering how worried I sometimes was, how bewildered at things God had permitted to happen. But now I see them all as a golden chain of mercies, gifts from a merciful Father, who, like the Father Jesus described, would never give His Son a snake if He asked for a fish. What looks to us like a good thing might actually ruin us. How thankful I am for God's withholdings, for His unfailing faithfulness. Now, as I look forward to what may be left of my future, I think of Whittier's lines, 
I know not where his islands lift their fronded palms in air. I only know I cannot drift beyond his love and care. I don't want to miss the islands whose beauty I never dreamed of in those anxious times. I want to be able to honestly to say, Father, I trust you. Forgive me for being so foolish as to imagine that you have made a mistake. Help me to receive grace to keep a quiet heart, sure that I am in this very moment held in the everlasting arms. And I would hope that that's an adequate answer to anyone who is angry at God. You can get a transcript of these five things under the heading Angry at God if you call Gateway to Joy. And now I will begin a part of a third answer. Again, this is in alphabetical order, and this one is called Babies in Church. The church nursery, well-organized and staffed, should be a great blessing in a congregation. For those who are new attenders, already a bit self-conscious and unsure, a nursery must be a welcome relief. The parents who have problems in controlling their children, or who have little idea as to just which direction they are going with discipline, may find the nursery a real answer to their dilemma. Dads and moms who are busy with responsibilities in the church program find the nursery most helpful. And some parents simply want their children in the nursery while they participate in Bible school and worship services. Throughout this country, we have hundreds of men and women devoted to the Lord and to the ministry of the church nursery. I have known a few myself. There will always be a need for these good people and the services they render. God bless them. But there's another side to the coin, and it deserves to be examined. What about this business of what to do with babies in church? There are some parents of small children who would like to keep their children with them in the worship service. It's an old-fashioned idea, but not necessarily a bad one. Yes, I've seen the mother who carried her baby to the front row and disturbed the whole worship service with her antics. And I've heard more than one little child scream his way through the communion meditation and prayer before being removed. This left most of the congregation far from a meditative mood. I've also seen the church nursery appear more as a circus arena than a secure place for a baby's I also I have also seen the church nursery appear more as a circus arena than a secure place for baby's care and attendants who were far more interested in Aunt Jane's pickle recipe than what Bobby was sticking in his mouth. I've seen babies scared by attendants more than cared for, and toddlers who learned a dozen bad habits in the nursery to every good one. Well, this is not something written by Elizabeth Elliot, but it is written by some very wise people who have some wonderful answers, which you will hear about tomorrow when I take up the question of what to do with babies in church. You are loved with an everlasting love. 
That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot, talking again today with answers from listeners, common questions from my radio listeners. And I want you to know how grateful I am for listening. And so many of you have written to me asking questions, which I sometimes can answer and very often can't. But I was reading at the end of yesterday's program from someone else who wrote a book, not a book, but just a little leaflet called Babies in Church. None of the bad scenes witness in church nurseries proves that all nurseries are bad. Neither do any of the bad scenes with little ones in the worship service prove that all who take their babies to a church service have done the wrong thing. There are some wonderful benefits and blessings in store for parent-child congregation and inevitably for the Lord when a baby is brought to the worship service with his parents and trained properly. Yes, I did use the word trained. Every person must learn, at one time or another, how to behave in a worship service, if the Lord is to be glorified and the individual inspired. After raising our children and watching others for over 25 adult years, I have rarely, se- I have rarely seen the training in the nursery prepare a child for worship services. I put in a parenthesis here that this is not Elizabeth Elliot talking, You are hearing my voice, but I'm reading from a woman who had been watching others in church over 25 adult years. Whenever the child enters the worship service, whether at the age of two, three, or ten, if he has been in an extended session, he is seldom ready to sit still and be quiet. On the other hand, the infant who is carried to services and taught from the earliest days to be reverent in the service and obedient to his parents will have learned a basic lesson very early, which will bless him all his days. Did I say it was an easy task? Certainly not. Anything really worthwhile is rarely easy, and many, indeed most, will not see the necessity of such early training. It is for those who do see that necessity that I offer these words of encouragement. Number one, responsibility. When our girls were little, she says, it seemed logical that if anyone should miss a portion of the service because of our child, it should be me. It would have been easier to abdicate that responsibility and to leave them in the care of a nursery attendant while I worshipped and studied in, quote, peace, unquote, or to place the child in the care of another church member while I served in the choir, at the piano, or in an extended session. While being cared for by someone else, our baby might have been instructed just as we wished, or she might have learned to play, be rocked, fed, or to riffle through someone's purse, write in the songbook, whisper, be passed from one person to another, walk down the pew, or coo over a shoulder at someone behind. None of these were acceptable behavior in the worship service at any time. I chose rather to sit in a back pew during those early training weeks to know exactly what our child was doing, to remove that child when she became noisy, 
and return with her when she had quieted. Parenthesis. No, the time spent out of the auditorium was not a pleasant experience. Unquote. We had a long-range goal that our children would, as older children, teenagers, and eventually adults, know how to conduct themselves in a worship service in a manner befitting the child of a king. My heart grieves as I observe older young people and adults who have never learned to truly participate in a worship service, and probably never will. They put little into the worship and take even less away. They sleep, talk, watch the clock, or stare straight ahead, unseeing and unhearing. They are bored. They make unneeded trips to the bathroom and take drinks for which there is no thirst. However and wherever the bad worship habits were learned, one thing is certain, they were learned well. Unless a conscious effort is made to correct them, these habits may eventually lead to the loss of their eternal life in heaven. Yes, we had a goal, and that goal was too important too big a responsibility to leave to someone else. If our goal was not reached, there would be no one to blame but ourselves. Now let's teach now, not later. As we progressed in this training process, our children learned to sit quietly when they entered the service, to open the book and sing at the appropriate times, to bow their heads and shut their eyes during prayer, and to be still during the sermon. Talking at any time, for any reason, except illness, was forbidden. It took self-control on their part in those early days, and obedience, two very good qualities in the Christian life, and they learned this worship behavior, and they learned it well. Some will argue that such behavior in a toddler is unnatural and unnecessary and will cause him to dislike church meetings for the rest of his life. I have observed that just the opposite is true. A child who is well-behaved in a church service can be and should be praised for his fine conduct. You're a good boy in church services, he should be told often. Such praise usually brings the desire to be even better. Happiness comes from obedience. Little children who know proper conduct in a worship service are far more likely to benefit from not only the adult service, but every learning situation in church and later in school because they have learned to control their actions and be attentive. A child can learn in adult worship. Many will say that there's no beneficial learning that a little one can experience in an adult service. Not so. An infant or toddler will learn impressions from his parents and the reverence of the service at these early ages that can be learned at no better time. It will be caught rather than taught. Much in life is. And there's a sense of security in being with dad and mom that cannot be equaled anywhere else. Now, here are some don'ts for the young parents. Number one, don't sit in the front. 
but in the back row near a quick and unnoticed exit. Number two, don't let your baby disturb the service. Remove him when he begins to be disruptive. Others really do have a right to worship in peace and quiet. Three, don't take a toy box in your purse. Number four, don't let the baby entertain others. Number five, don't let others entertain the baby. Number six, don't make a trip outside the auditorium pleasant. A simple spanking may work. But perhaps even better, pick a room out of earshot and where absolutely no activity is going on. Hold your little one firmly on your lap until he realizes a quiet room is more boring than an, editor- than an auditorium. Number seven, don't take your baby to the nursery from the worship service. He will never forget it, nor how he was able to get there. Number eight, don't be discouraged. It takes time to train. Now here are six do's. Number one, do remember your long-range goals. Number two, do be patient with those who criticize. Number three, be consistent in your training. Number four, set the very best possible example. Number five, prepare your child at home. Sit down every day with your baby, holding him quietly on your lap. Start immediately for a few minutes and increase the time daily. Use an instructional news program on TV or a record for background. Number six, pray daily for your little one. Now, these are not easy ways and will not appeal to everyone. But an ounce of prevention is still worth a pound of cure. The tiny, honey-haired girl who sat by my side held up a small card rolled into a tube with a tissue stuffed in the end. She gave me her biggest grin, and I returned it. While many experts tell us that 22-month-old toddlers cannot sit still more than a few moments at a time, this child had been quietly playing with the card and tissue for 20 minutes. And she played on, disturbing no one while my full attention went back to the sermon. Babies can learn. Indeed, babies do learn. They are soaking up habits, attitudes, and principles from the moment of birth. Unfortunately, they will absorb the bad as easily as the good. And that's why God gave children parents to teach them, to train them in the way they should go. The devil would like us to believe that there's always time. But wise Solomon, inspired by God, wrote, Discipline your children while they are young enough to learn. If you don't, you are helping them destroy themselves. Wonderfully practical advice about training the smallest children to be able to sit in church rather than in the nursery. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend Elizabeth Elliot talking again today of various questions that have come to me frequently because of my radio broadcast. And today's topic is barrenness. 
this will be one of, I think, two topics that will fit into this one program. Women write to me who are in deep sorrow because they are barren and long for children. And so I wrote to one lady, yours is a deep sorrow, which is not uncommon, as you know I realize. You remember the Old Testament story in 1 Samuel chapter 1. A man named Elkanah had two wives. The relationship between the two women was strained for years because Peninnah had children, but the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. It seems an irony that Peninnah, who gave no evidence of godliness, was given children, and Hannah, who wept and prayed much, was not. She, like you, prayed in anguish and grief, and the Lord remembered her. She conceived and gave birth to a son. What can we say but that God alone knows what is best for any of us? All are called to suffer in various ways, that we may learn to trust Him fully, no matter how strange His holy dealings may seem to us to be. Perhaps you know that God took my husband, so I, who had hoped for a large family, have but one child. When we can't trace His hand, we must trust His love. Lamentations 3 31 to 33 says, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the sons of men. Barrenness, for many who long for fertility, may be seen as a part of the Lord's pruning process described in John 15. Study the whole chapter. Have you ever thought of the bewilderment of Joseph, the Virgin Mary's betrothed, to find that she was impregnated by the Holy Spirit? What strong faith he was required to exhibit. The Apostle Paul wrote of his dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And note Carefully, Galatians 4, 27. Be glad, O barren woman, who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. There is no such thing as an elite group chosen to be called mothers. To each of his children... God appoints the task appropriate to that one. Amy Carmichael, missionary to South India, believed before she left Ireland that God was calling her to be single. She did not know why, but later she became the mother of 700 children who, without the safe place, the Donovore Fellowship, which she founded, would have been placed in Hindu temples to be used as prostitutes. My life has been greatly blessed by women who have gladly accepted singleness and or barrenness for the sake of Christ. I have a married niece who could not conceive and has been given the lovely gifts of three adopted children. What an offering to lift up to God. 
May I earnestly entreat you to ask him about adoption? Think of the millions of unwanted babies. And I think of our friends, Bill and Debbie Ratu, who have adopted 28 children, more than half of whom are seriously handicapped. Imagine that household. Believe it or not, it's peaceful, it's quiet, it's happy. When we visit there, the children want to show us everything in the house, and they want to sing for us, and they want to hold our hands and hug us. And I said to Bill and Debbie, how do you do it? And they just smile, and they just say, God gave them to us. And so their answer is, yes, Lord, yes. Think of the millions of unwanted babies. Are you willing to, be cons- to, cons- are you willing to consider adoption? perhaps of more than one child. And now for a few passages in Scripture that you might want to look up, which I haven't time for today. You might want to read my book called A Path Through Suffering and then carefully study, you have a pencil and paper, 2 Corinthians 4, 10 to 12, Galatians 4, 13, 1 John 3, 16, and Romans 8, 17, and 18. I'll read those again. 2 Corinthians 4, 10 to 12. Galatians 4, 13. 1 John 3, 16. And Romans 8, 17, and 18. Be assured that you are in my prayers today. Next question, which I've tried to answer, under the heading of The Breadwinner. Thank you for your letter of April 4th. I appreciate your taking time to write me your concern about my views on women who work while the husband stays home. This is a matter on which I've reflected long and hard. It's true, of course, that a woman has skills which her husband does not possess, and vice versa. I agree that God gives a father the capacity for what you call parenting, but he is not a mother. He's charged with the responsibility to provide for his family so that his wife is free to mother the children. These divinely assigned tasks we are not at liberty to reverse. God created Eve to be a helper for Adam. It was Adam's job to husband her, to care for, protect, provide. A man who does not provide for his family is worse than an infidel. I try always to be faithful to what the Scripture says. Surely there are cases necessitating the wife's supporting the family, such as a man's radical disability. But the exceptions are not my business. I've tried to encourage women whose husbands ask them to work while they are completing training, seminary, medicine, or law, perhaps, to view this as a temporary expedient of God, to view this as a temporary, to view this as a temporary expedient, to view this as a temporary expedient. God's will for marriage is fruitfulness. It is a heavy burden for a woman to try to be both breadwinner and mother. A wife, no matter what her intellectual capacity or ability to bring in more money than her husband, is still to submit to him, 
not because he is smarter, wiser, or more spiritual, but simply because he is her husband, holding an office, headship it's called, which God has assigned to him for her blessing and freedom. God gives gifts, note the plural, to all of us. But the exercise of those gifts is a matter of careful and humble obedience to his will. Competence is not a warrant for disobedience. I've had letters from men whose wives have divorced them because of their determination to work. Gerald Van, in his book Eve and the Griffin, says that a woman's greatest temptation is to be a triumphant rival of the work her husband is meant to do. I am deeply aware, in my own experience, of learning to submit to three very different husbands, and the first two died, that pride, possessiveness, and an independent spirit are a constant danger. We women were not made to be competitors, but compliments to our husbands, helping, supporting, serving with a gentle and quiet spirit. To choose another role puts both husband and wife under very great strain. When we speak of rights with regard to the family, we must be very cautious. A Christian home is a place where the law is love, and love always means sacrifice. We are promised that if we seek first the kingdom of God, all necessary things will be provided for us. It's my earnest hope and prayer that God's order for the family be accepted that children may be cared for by their mother and provided for by their father. We can trust the Lord to show us his way in case of the exceptions to his clearly defined pattern. Socioeconomic conditions may impose changing realities. Yet we have the word which tells us, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. He is always ready to show us the way of obedience. I do my best on Gateway to Joy to stick closely to principles. Of course, I'm fallible. The Lord is merciful and of great compassion. He knows if a given case requires this role reversal. But I want to encourage listeners always to seek God's very best. He may have an answer far better than your fears. Trust and obedience are our gateway to joy. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot, continuing my talk today of answering questions. I get thousands of letters and many, many questions that come in those letters, and some of them are duplicates. And so I've tried to answer some things which might be applicable to a number of you. This one is a case where children are really not wanted. Throughout most of human history, the modern mechanical and chemical means of preventing conception were not available. And women more or less received what God gave them, willingly or unwillingly. Now that technology offers so many choices, what does a Christian do? I don't have a final answer, much less a directly inspired word 
for anyone. But I suggest the following for your prayerful consideration. Number one, the first commandment given to Adam and Eve was to be fruitful and multiply. It's clear that marriage and fruit-bearing go together in God's mind. Number two, married couples within childbearing age, of course, must hear God's call to parenthood. They may not opt out of this responsibility to Him, to family, to society, and to each other. A sterile couple who may not be able to conceive may certainly consider adopting children. As in yesterday's talk, I referred to my dear friends Bill and Debbie Rutu in Greer, South Carolina. Twenty-eight children, almost all of whom have been adopted. Number three, to refuse to transmit life is to act against the nature of both man and woman as God designed it and to ignore his plan. In the marvelous physiological mechanisms of the reproductive system, God included a means of contraception which some call natural family planning. This differs significantly from the mechanical and chemical means of intervention in that, first of all, it requires the self-control, self-sacrifice, and cooperation of both the man and the woman. Thus, instead of being the arbiters of the sources of life, they are the ministers or servants of the God-given means. To me, this is a tremendously important distinction. For the Christian couple then, rather than impeding the natural process, is making legitimate use of the divine gift. Love is the willingness to be inconvenienced. Children are certainly an inconvenience in a great many ways and at nearly all times. Yet it's plain from Scripture that fruitfulness is God's call to a married couple. Real love of whatever kind always bears fruit. Love means acceptance, and acceptance means abandonment, which is the great risk of great lovers. An awesome power is given over, which is the power to hurt. No one in the world has such power to hurt as husband, wife, intimate friend, or child. To love is to be vulnerable to that power which lies in the hands of the one loved. When a mother and father look into the face of their tiny newborn, they know that that little creature already has the power to rake their souls with pain, a power which grows as the child grows. A sword shall pierce thine own soul, said old Simeon to the virgin mother. To love means to open ourselves to risk and suffering. Shall we shut our doors to love, then, and be safe? Acceptance of discipleship is the utter abandonment of the disciple, the surrender of all rights to the master. This abandonment, in all cases, will ultimately lead to perfect joy. But the way to joy is, in most cases, pain. 
Through much tribulation you must enter the kingdom. God said, Christ never offered immunity. He asked for trust. Nothing in life calls for a deeper humility, a clearer recognition of our own inadequacies and helplessness, and a stronger faith than the gift of parenthood. It's calculated to put us on our faces in the dust. One last word to be pondered. I don't pretend to understand it, but surely it touches on the great mystery of maternity in a way which the Holy Spirit did not explain to us. 1 Timothy 2.15 says, Women will be saved through bearing children if she continues in faith and love and holiness with modesty. I take this to mean at least this much. She's kept in the path of safety, not by taking the offices of men, but by performing the functions assigned to women by the Lord himself. When he withholds the gift of children from a married woman, it is for his own holy purposes, and surely he will save her as she fulfills those. And my dear brother-in-law, Bert Elliott, and his wonderful wife, Colleen, have been missionaries in Peru, South America, for more than 50 years. It was a great sorrow to them that God did not give them children. But God has given them hundreds, perhaps thousands, of spiritual children as he gave them a work which required that they be constantly traveling, six months out of the year, in the steaming jungles of the Amazon, six months out of the year in the high, freezing cold of the Andes. Well, they're still there. They're in Peru. They're in a town on the coast of Peru now, but still rejoicing in the Lord and thanking Him for the privilege that He has given them of these children. Now, questions on What does one do with a chaotic home? Do not despair. Yes, you've made many mistakes, and the chaos in your home is the direct result of the failures of you and your husband. But the story is not new. Our adversary, the devil, is continually walking about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But we have a mighty fortress, a God who loves us and promises to help us. In 2 Corinthians 10, we read, Though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Jesus Christ has overcome the world. He can demolish the strongholds which the enemy has established in your home. My great-grandfather, Henry Clay Trumbull, raised eight children. He wrote a book called Hints on Child Training, which is available from Gateway to Joy, 1-800-7594-J-O-Y, in which he says it's a parent's privilege and a parent's duty to make his children, by God's blessing, to be and to do what they should be and do, rather than what they would like to be and do. 
I suggest that you call a family council, gather everybody together, explain that you and your husband have made some bad mistakes. Confess to the children that you are very sorry about this. You realize you have not created a happy home, but you have now learned something and are going to start over. Then let everyone get down on their knees. Pray for the Lord's forgiveness and ask Him to help you be mothers and fathers as you are supposed to be to your children and to help the children to do what they ought to do quickly and cheerfully. And perhaps you might even ask each child to pray briefly. The next step is to make it clear that you are going to expect your children to obey you. Depending on the ages of the children, you might want to illustrate the necessity of obedience by referring to the coach of an athletic team. He calls the shots. The players do exactly what he says. If they don't, there's no game. Or point to traffic laws, which make it possible for everybody to move in an orderly way. If one person runs through a red light, he could kill somebody. If you have a child who has reached crawling age but has not been taught the two basic commands, this would be a good place to start setting the example for the whole family. You will speak once in a calm tone of voice, and you will expect the child to do exactly what you say. Of course, this will strike the older ones as ridiculous and impossible. But emphasize that you are quite serious about it, because this is what God wants in a Christian family. The parents exercising loving authority, the children submitting to that authority, because God's will is a peaceful home. He does not want us to be frustrated to the point of rage every day. Now, here are the two basic commands. Come and know. These two words should be taught as soon as the child learns to crawl. The longer this is put off, the more difficult it is to teach it. So try this. Number one, speak his name in a normal tone of voice. Number two, establish eye contact. Number three, issue the word command, issue the one word command calmly. Come. Number four, do not repeat it. I'll give them to you again. Number one, speak his name in a normal tone of voice. Jeremy. Number two, establish eye contact. Look him in the eye. Number three, issue the one-word command calmly, come. Number four, do not repeat it. May God give you grace to train up the child the way he should go. God will give you the wisdom you need each day as you turn to him for help. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot, continuing my talk, talks in alphabetical order. I told you at the beginning of the week that I would be trying to answer some of the frequent questions that I receive in radio mail. I do the best I can to give a scriptural answer. Of course, I'm not 
by any means infallible. But I trust that God will give me wisdom as I seek his will and study his scriptures. Wisdom for the answers of those who are asking. And here is one that is really quite common nowadays. How am I supposed to learn to see Christ in my husband? So many women write to me to tell me about their husbands who either are not Christians at all, or they're not behaving like Christians, even though they claim to be one. So what we need to do is to learn to see Christ in our husbands. Jesus said, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. He also said, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. That's from Matthew 25, 40 and 45. Here is perhaps one of the most difficult but also most transforming truths for a wife to grasp. She lives with a fallible human being 365 days a year. And so does he. Her husband does not always act like Christ, nor does she. Yet the Bible gives clear instructions to both. Look up Ephesians 5, 24, and 28. These instructions seem impossible. The husband is to love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife is to respect or reverence her husband. Let's remember that what is impossible with men is possible with God. And he has never issued a command which he will not enable us to fulfill. And I want to repeat that. God has never issued a command which he will not enable us to fulfill. The question is, will we choose to obey? Because I receive so many more letters from wives than from husbands, I will leave the, but what about him, unquote, to God and try to address the difficulties that we wives face. What is the wife to do if he is being disobedient in any way to what God says? I'm very grateful for the shining testimonies of several women who have found love, joy, and peace by following the clear word of Scripture. Their marriages, once difficult, have been totally transformed. Might we who earnestly desire that God's will be gladly obeyed in our home trust God to help us toward that transformation? He will, I believe, if we begin with Jesus' three conditions for discipleship in Matthew 16, 24. Number one, give up your right to yourself. That is a tough command and a scary thought. Give up your right to yourself. Number two, take up the cross, which means suffering. Number three, follow. A daily obedience. Give up your right to yourself, take up the cross, and follow. Do you want to be a disciple? Those are the conditions. Once having made up our minds to be disciples, we may then study the specific teaching on marriage. Number one, what are the respective roles of husband and wife? 
Look first at Ephesians 5:22-33. The husband represents Christ as he is head of the church. The wife represents the church, the bride of Christ. This means that wives should submit No, this means that she is assigned a subordinate position, one which the world despises. As the church submits to Christ, the Bible says, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. That's Ephesians 5.24. Subordination is not inferiority. It is divine, drawn from the very nature of God. The Holy Spirit witnesses to Christ. Christ witnesses to the Father. And in obedience to his Father, he was willing to be made a little lower than the angels. That is, he was willing to be a mere man. P.T. Forsyth wrote, Without the spirit of subordination, there is no true piety, no manly nobility, and no womanly charm. Such a concept is vehemently opposed by the world today. But if we insist on equality, we refuse the divine order which brings harmony. Now we're down to number two. Number one was what are the respective roles of husband and wife? Number two, what shall we wives do if the husband is disobedient to the word? Peter answers the question. 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2. Wives, in the same way, referring to Jesus' response to insults, suffering, and injustice in the previous chapter, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Is it easy for you women to keep silence? Well, it certainly isn't for me. One of my friends has cheered me greatly by her own testimony. She wanted, above all, to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. She offers this suggestion. When your husband comes home, say to yourself, Christ returns. Practice readiness. When he is hungry or thirsty, give to him as if he were Christ, remembering that it is Christ he represents. What a privilege we have to minister to him just as the women of the New Testament did. If your husband is disobedient to the word in any way, don't get headaches trying to be quiet. Put an imaginary blanket over his face to cover a multitude of sins and not bring them to mind. And this paragraph that I've just read comes from a woman named Lori Morrison. And I think she's learned a lot of great lessons along these lines. Try to see Christ in the man you live with, even though he may be acting in a less than Christ-like way. Rest on this. You married women should adapt yourselves to your husbands, so that even if they do not obey the word of God, they may be one to God without a word being spoken, simply by seeing the pure and reverent behavior of you, their wives. Verse 6 refers to the example of Sarah, whose husband Abraham asked her to do some foolish things. Yet she obeyed him, called him her master, and did not give way to hysterical fears. 
we give ourselves many excuses for failure to comply with our husband's wishes. Often it is merely that we prefer something else, and we're unwilling to surrender our preferences. A more serious objection is fear that our husband's decisions will be unwise and perhaps even disastrous. This is our opportunity to trust God in the man he has given over us. My friend says, if the disobedience is an unkind or harsh attitude, instead of pulling away, nursing wounds, say, you, Father, have put this upon me. It's from your dear hand. Your appointed trial for me right now, and I accept it with joy. Beware, however, of a martyr complex, which leads to that terrible temptation of our enemy the devil called self-pity. If we get down on our knees and offer up our sufferings to Christ, he knows just what to do with them. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. That's Hebrews 4.15. Beware also of saying, but what about me? Why am I the one who always has to give in? That question cloaks a critical spirit. Love aims always at unity and at the good of the other. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Another translation says, love never gives up. And that paragraph that I just read is from 1 Corinthians 13. I commend it to you to memorize. 1 Corinthians 13. Spend more time thanking God for your husband than you do in criticizing him. Pray for him earnestly and daily, asking the Lord to help you to practice the self-giving, sacrificial love that he showed to us on the cross, accepting the terrible injustice as the Father's will. Treat him exactly as you would wish to treat Christ if he came into your home. Can we do that? No, not by ourselves, but we are not alone. God speaks peace to our souls. Do not fear, for I am with you, he says. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.